My name is Lisa Moore, and this is State of the Arts. State of the Arts at Memorial Humanities and Social Sciences. Analysis whip smart and professorial smart people talking about what they know best. Listen to Lisa as she brings them all together and we try to figure out how to live together better with fat stacks of research found to impress. So let's talk about the faculty of HSS. Welcome to State of the Arts, a podcast exploring the humanities and social sciences, broadcasting from Memorial University in St. John's, Newfoundland. I'm Lisa Moore, and I'm a writer, visual artist, and an associate professor in Memorial's English department. I talk to faculty members about the critical role of their work in understanding our changing world and the practices of living together well. Welcome everybody to the ninth broadcast of State of the Arts. And we are so happy to be broadcasting once again from Memorial Center of Innovation in Teaching and Learning. Thank you to Mark Shallow and Donna Downey and to all of the crew who are here because we're blocked to the gills with crew. <laughs> and a special thank you to Janet Harron and Benjamin Dugdale. This is a Facebook Live event about exploring the humanities and social sciences here at Memorial University. In this monthly program, that we, we talk with a variety of faculty members about their work and how their issues address teaching and research and critical understanding of the way our world is changing and turning and twisting uh, beneath our very feet. My name is Lisa Moore, and I'm a writer and visual artist and associate professor in the Department of English at Memorial. <laughs> and I am very pleased to introduce our guest, Dr. Jennifer Dyer, who is currently the head of Memorial's Gender Studies Department. Mm -hmm. And Jennifer received her BA Honors in Cultural Studies from Trent University, um, followed by an MPhil in Humanities here at Memorial. Mm -hmm. And um, then you did a PhD at Western? I did an MA in Theory and Criticism at Western. And then a PhD in the University of Amsterdam. Yes. She is an associate professor of gender studies and has previously held the position of director, interdisciplinary PhD program, and the director of the MPhil in Humanities. Yeah. Right? Yep. <laughs> That's me. Uh, she has received the Dean of Arts <clears throat> Teaching Award, the SDS SGS Dean Award for Service, and her research runs the gamut. <laughs> Did you know all that? <laughs> <laughs> from philosophical aesthetics, art history, art theory, yeah. communications theory, media <laughs> studies, semiotics, <laughs> queer theory, and transgendered studies. Yes. So thank Very you. interdisciplinary. Thank you. Thank you for being here, Jennifer. Thank you. Jennifer and I are old friends. Yeah. Like, I, I can remember the first time I met you, lo, those many years ago. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we've seen our kids grow up together. Yep. That's true. Um, so I, I'm going to start by asking you about, you came to Newfoundland in 1993 Three. from yeah. southwestern Ontario. Yeah. Yep. And you did your MPhil. I did my MPhil here. At Memorial. Yep. And then you did all those other degrees. Yes. What? And then came back here. Yeah. So what was that trip like? What was that trajectory, that journey? <laughs> well, it was, it was bumpy because there were lots of uh, 
I think, I think it, was, it was bumpy and it was circuitous. And I think a big part of that was because most of my degrees, all of my degrees, are interdisciplinary. And so 25 years ago, interdisciplinary was cultural studies and a few things in the sciences. And there weren't a lot of positions for that. So uh, applying to jobs has been a bit tricky, trying to pin down a discipline within all that. And really, for me, over the past 10 years, interdisciplinary scholarship has really opened up and there's a lot more value to it, a lot more you can do with it, a lot more recognition. And for me, that means a lot more opportunities. <laughs> I think though, on your trajectory, you really were in a lot of different places in the university, but yeah. followed your heart and your interests, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've lectured in English and philosophy and where else? Communication studies. Um, gender studies. Gender studies. And in the humanities, of course. And uh, yeah, and in all of those, I mean, I, I was actually able to talk about what I want to talk about, which involved art or social, critical social theory. Um, aesthetics is always in there somehow, right? And even in gender studies, right? This, I can bring this in. That's yeah. good. Yeah, yeah. So in 2016, you did a study of uh, the support of the arts in Newfoundland. Yes. Um, and you said, um, let me see. You said, and I quote, a well-administered democratic state where citizens are encouraged to be engaged in their communities cannot exist without art. So <laughs> I remember writing that. I was on a plane. <laughs> and I typed it into my note, the note thing on my phone. There you go. That's how, <laughs> so that's how critical theory gets written. It's on a phone and it's on a plane. On a plane. <laughs> so how do you think art you know, live, makes us live better? I think art and any kind of art, so sculptures and writing and music and, and like everything, uh, all this kind of art, um, it, it allows us to do to connect, to build communities, to represent ourselves, to recognize differences, to recognize similarities that people have. It helps us to. Uh, espouse all the virtues that we hold to be the real virtues of living, right? Certainly what we hold, say, in Newfoundland, where we're all about creativity and inclusivity and diversity. Where does that come out? It doesn't come out of a spreadsheet, right? It comes out in art. It allows you to recognize this in so many different ways, um, which for me is just so, it's so important. Uh, the community building part is a huge part of that, right? So, so. Let, let's talk about the work you're doing now. Yeah. And I know you have a SHRC grant. Yep. Uh, what does SHRC stand for? <laughs> the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. So you're exploring um, the advocacy of parents of transgendered children? Yeah, yeah. Can you talk about... Well, first of all, it's not just me, right? right? So I am joining a project that's already there that was made by many other people. So there's lots of people. Three of us are at, at MUN. There's uh, people in Montreal and Lethbridge and Toronto and Victoria, uh, just all over Canada, and we're all working together. So this is very much a, about community for, for me. So again, this is community building right? in, a, yeah. in a big way. But yeah. And so... Um, You've said that in, or your, your, you guys, yeah. you people, have said that in 2013 there's kind of been a pivotal change in particular, I guess, with parenting of mm -hmm. transgendered children, but also just in the transgendered community. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about what uh, ignited that change and what it means and how that makes l transgendered children's lives different? Recognition. <laughs> so uh, uh, what ignited that change? I have no idea. Um, 
<laughs> I don't. But what I do know is that it happened. So this is something that came out of this is something that came out of a, a, a different study, a different shirk funded study. But the participants are also in this in this group. So uh, um, Kim Manning in Montreal was one of the people who really put this together. And part of what she was talking about there was that in 2013, this is something that came across Canada with people who had no connection to one another. These were parents of trans kids or gender diverse kids, and they just started talking about it. They started asking questions, taking their kids seriously, first of all, when they when they say, like, I don't, don't really think I'm what you say I am. Um, so everybody started taking their kids seriously around the same time, which is really interesting. I don't know what happened there, but it's, it's so important and it's so beautiful. Um, so they take their kids seriously and they start advocating. They start asking questions or making demands. So uh, at school or at the doctor's office or at the hospital or wherever, right? Um, where are the representations in TV shows? Uh, that sort of thing, right? Can we talk about bodies and ideas uh, in terms of the difference between gender and sex and uh, labels and um, pronouns and all of that? Because it seems to me, strangely, yeah. I would say, that some of the most fiery arguments have come out of grammar. And I wonder if, if you know, people not wanting to give up he and she, yeah. and I wonder if that is really a red herring uh, for people who are, must change in the ways that they I think, think. it's absolutely a red herring, first of all, because language changes all the time. Um, so if we're going to talk about the English language, the English language changes all the time. And the meanings of words change all the time, right? Um, so there's that. Uh, the second point about they, which always comes up, um, that I, I, can't, I can't go against the rules of grammar. Well, we do it all the time. We usually do it to, to people those, whose gender we don't know and may not seem important at this particular moment. So, so the, the jerk who's racing past me on the highway, did you see how fast they were going, right? So I don't need to know who that person was to know that you know, <laughs> want to say something about that person. So we use, we use they, we use them a lot. Um, now we're using they in a slightly different way, slightly more intentional way um, to, you know, to basically to respect people. This is not a problem. It's also historically not a problem. Uh, so they, to talk about an individual, was not a huge issue about 150 years ago. It was in English, in the English language. It was used in lots of different places. So. I think people it's, are it's really a, grappling to, to get their minds and hands and hearts around yeah. the, the most respectful ways of thinking about things and talking about things. So can you talk about bodies and gender and sex and the difference between those things and, and how, you know, because I think there are people out there who are, you know, want to understand and you are mm -hmm. calling for education. Absolutely. Um, well, the first thing I would say is uh, if you really want to take a look at this, uh, you can look, look up, you can Google the gender unicorn, and it gives you a really good outline of, of, of what's at issue there. I think the upshot would be that gender is something that you, this is an identity that you feel inside yourself, that you feel in your head when you close your eyes. Um, so one of my colleagues here, Julie Temple Newhook, uh, says, um, with, with a lot of her education on this, uh, when you close your eyes, like, who, who are you in your head? That's your gender. That's where that is. Um, and when it comes to sex, this is also something that, is treated in a very binary way, but it, but it's not. First of all, <laughs> we'll say that. But that'll be something that is that is in your body, right? Um, <clears throat> and I, I would consider gender and sex both to be uh, on 
about to be fluid. These are these are on gradations. There's all sorts of different things going on. You can't link it to as, say, the Trump administration would like to do in the States um, by denying the actual existence of trans and gender diverse individuals by tying this to, to chromosomes, to hormones, to what you have in your pants. <laughs> None of that stuff is, uh, is going to be determinative of anything, really. Uh, there's, also, there's so many differences. It doesn't, doesn't determine this. So these are, those are both fluid. But one is in your head. So, um, so, so we have to th we have to think in new ways. I think. Yeah. Um, but also, I know that your group is looking at actual, um, and you've brought up the Trump, Trump administration, mm. and of course, there's horrific things going on in Brazil and mm -hmm. all those places where we're seeing, um, you know, the uh, extreme right take over. We're seeing new upsurges of yeah. transphobia, homophobia, every every kind of racism. So. Um, you are actually looking at the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and you're looking at laws in different provinces, you and, and the people you're working with on this Shirk project. Mm -hmm. So what kind, of, what kind of things have you seen and what, uh, what kind of changes, positive changes, have you seen? Well, here we're looking at, uh, we're looking at advocacy in all those ways, so in, in legal ways. And any other aspect of life, because it's it's very important, and all you know, to bring it in. So first of all, a big change would be would be a, a group of parents, um, a, a group of parent activists, right? Did bring this uh, to the human right as a human rights case, right? So so this is now the, your gender identity is now protected, right? Under as a human right in Canada, individually within various provinces. Various provinces are in different places in terms of how to protect that, what that looks like, where they are with, with it, right? So it's, it changes place by place. Um, here, for instance, it's, uh, it, it is protected, but it's very hard to, to tie that in with, say, healthcare, right? Because um, I'm just trying to think of an example. An example would be, say, top surgery. Top surgery is not covered in, in, in Newfoundland, right, mm -hmm. for individuals. It's also at the, at the I'm going to say whim, which is going to be, going to be very uh, in, much in trouble with the doctors, but it's at the whim of surgeons. That's at their discretion. So even though uh, I, you know, I would have a human right to, to express myself in this way, I can't actually get the, the health care that I need, right, in this province to make that happen. I, I would have to go somewhere else. So there are different ways of negotiating. So well, how do they decide? Is this a psychological test or a physical test, or how do surgeons uh, in Newfoundland? This is such a big thing. <laughs> that would be decided on whether or not uh, it's, it's worth investing time and effort into somebody whose gender you can't trust. That strikes me as a human rights violation, uh, mm -hmm. and there is some work going into this, but. So it reminds me of the discussion about uh, abortion when, um, you know, ab abortion became uh, more readily available. And I know that people in Newfoundland had to see a, a, a board of uh, psychiatrists yeah. in order to get an abortion. And they were often all men. Mm -hmm. So um, you talk here about... Um, you say that this advocacy work yeah. for... Uh, uh, transgendered people, mm -hmm. children, yeah. is uh, very gendered work. The advocacy work yes. is gendered. Yeah. And you're saying that mothers are often doing this work. Mm -hmm. And how is it gendered or why? Because it's care work. 
Uh, I think that's a big part of it is care work. So what we found is just empirically in terms of this, there are many parent groups across the country. We have three here in Newfoundland um, of parents of, of trans and gender diverse kids. And for the most part, not wholly, but for the most part, it is mothers who come to these groups who are doing a lot of the advocating, um, say with doctors who don't believe it or schools who won't recognize it. Uh, so they're doing a lot of that work. They're doing a lot of the... Um, asking the questions, getting the information. That's certainly something that I did, for instance. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's like my, when, when, when somebody comes home you, and has this, uh, this announcement, then you, you look it up, right? You have, you've got to figure it out. So what we found empirically are that the people who are doing this are the mothers. But I think the, that's, that's very much tied to the fact that, that mothering and this sort of work is care work. And care work is, is uh, traditionally put in the hands of women, right, of mothers. Um, the third thing, right, so care work is one, but the third thing that happens there is that trans and uh, trans identities and gender diversity is something that's been pathologized for a very long time, yes. right? And that's pathologization. Uh, the first stop in making this a problem so is... So what do you mean by that? Blaming it on mothers. A pathologization by saying it's an illness, right? Saying there's something wrong. So when things go wrong, right? This is a, a gender, an identity uh, issue that is a pro that has been considered a problem, an illness, something that has to be changed an and corrected, illness. right? And who is responsible for the psychological illness? Mothers. <laughs> That's the first stop on this one. So there's some sort of trauma up in there. But um, as, as you were saying, uh, these mothers then become experts. Like they are delving into these questions yeah. and then become experts on I think, the subject. I think for those two reasons. I mean, from what I, this is only early days, but for those two reasons, because it's a form of care work and because uh, mothers are the ones who are blamed for this, right? But so I can't, I can't say what happened in 2013 to make that change happen, but so many parents have, uh, and, and primarily mothers have, so they step forward, believe their children, believe this is not an illness, right? That they are better and stronger and healthier when they are believed and accepted for who they are, which shouldn't be rocket science, right? <laughs> so the mothers are doing this sort of work. So I don't you, think that answers your question, though. Yeah, no, okay. <laughs> I mean, and also, of course, uh, you, you have talked about in your research the fact that women, uh, mothers, are drawing on uh, a sort of feminism that um, has made them recognize, for instance, the sexism in everyday moments. Yeah. And that, so be, having lived with that kind of thinking and psych, you know, advocacy yeah. for, for women, it possibly allows women to easily see what transphobia looks like in the everyday. Sure, yeah. Because there are, there are, there are different, different there. ways of recognizing yourself being policed or disciplined into maintaining a certain identity or a certain presentation of self that uh, this, it just works differently with women than with men because of sexism in society. Absolutely. So, yeah. Yeah. And then one of the things you've talked about, like a uh, just a tricky uh, moment in parenting uh, a trans child. Yeah. And I would say this is probably true of parenting anyone, mm -hmm. is that you must recognize some of this advocacy work is about uh, protecting the child. Yeah, it is and, about protecting. And some of it is about recognizing their own uh, ability to identify who they are. Yes. 
And that's a key point, I think, because a lot of uh, a lot of there are obviously a lot of attacks that parents of trans kids uh, are subject to, and that's a major one that we are making our kids trans. And there's a very big difference between enforcing a certain identity on your child and listening to your child and trusting that they know what they're talking about. And all the research, by the way, from so many pediatric associations points to uh, children know, right? They know their gender identity by the time they're, they're three, right? They, they know this as kids. You might change your mind later on, right? Maybe, maybe you aren't able to fully understand it. Maybe the notion of trans identity was just never around. It was never an option, so it never came up. Um, but, you know, children know. <laughs> and I think some of the important work that you're doing is providing a vocabulary mm -hmm. uh, so that when children, um, you know, uh, see, you know, they're searching for a name, a word, a, a way of describing yeah. who they are when it's not completely out, you, you, the yeah. person next to you may not be the same. Right. So I think, talk, can you talk about that, about, lab, you know, finding ways of naming those feelings, those recognitions yeah. that something is different, possibly different? This is rare. This is where my, my, my own interest in critical cultural theory and representation and art comes in because yes. <laughs> there's a connection because this is about uh, finding representations and having representations of yourself out there. So if all the representations of, of girls look one particular way, then if you don't identify with that representation, um, if you do, but you're not supposed to identify with that representation, there's no space for you and there's no vocabulary for you. There's also no set of images. There's no understanding of, of what you are where you're supposed to fit, how you could possibly fit, what those options are, they're not there, right? So for me, my, my interest, I feel like my role in this project is looking at that sort of thing. So media representations, pop cultural representations, whether you're talking about songs or literature or movies or where the real, where the real work is being done, I think graphic novels, right? It's a huge space for this, right? To, to, to find this vocabulary, to find these, these presentations of a form of self, right, that are, that are out there. And you've looked at, at classical art as well. Yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Um, so I, I'm working, I've got a colleague at uh, the University of Winnipeg, Alison Surtees, and she's a classicist, and I'm in gender studies, and part of what, uh, what Alison wanted to, wanted to look at was, was, was opening a different lens onto the classical world. So not only a feminist lens, but a queer and a trans lens on the, on the classical world. And out of a conference came, these, came these, these papers and these questions. So we got together and decided, let's put them together as a, as a, as a book. So this, uh, this book has been submitted to Edinburgh, Edinburgh University Press. Um, yay! Yay! <laughs> so happy! And the, the essays are amazing and they're really good, but they're also mind-blowing to find that with different, different ideological lenses, with your archaeology, or your textual analysis or your image analysis, material culture, if you just look and say, okay, maybe uh, a heteronormative lens or a heteronormative way of reading things isn't necessary here, maybe it's not even shared with that world, can that make more sense of the texts or the fragments or the pieces of, you know, of art or whatever that, uh, that I see? And the answer is yes, <laughs> it does make more sense. You find that there, are, there, are, there were cultures who had all sorts of different genders, or none, no notion of gender, right? Who organized their genders in very different, their, their, their bodies in very different ways than, than we do. And 
that gives a history to these diverse gender identities, which I think is so important to have, to say like, it didn't just bang, pop up now. Recognition popped up now, but this has been around for a very long time. This is called being human. Yes. Right? Yeah, and I think of the uh, the documentary Paris is Burning, which is yeah. uh, on Netflix, everybody. <laughs> um, and, and that is in the 60s or 70s, mm -hmm. and there's already trans people all talking about oh, surgery yeah. and everything. So we have this notion sometimes that this is what have the kids thought of, yeah. but actually, in fact, it's been going on, as you say. Yeah, but since forever. <laughs> forever. Forever. Um, so, so I know that we had a, we had a, a sticker situation here at Memorial. Yeah. And you've talked about one of the things that parents have to constantly weigh when they're advocating mm. is the, uh, you know, the damage of backlash. Can you talk about that, that, because you wrote a very powerful piece in the Telegram, which I hope people will look up because <laughs> it, I, I read it and it's very moving, Jennifer. Yeah. Um, can you talk about what those stickers were, first the stickers. of all. The stickers, well, the stickers didn't start here, but the stickers are basically anti-trans women. And this comes from a conversation that is that is happening all over the place where lots of far-right, uh, it's a far-right conversation. Anyway, so this is this is coming from, um, from TERFs, which are trans exclusionary radical feminists, and these are basically people who, uh, who don't want trans women in their feminism and don't consider trans women to be real women, which is baloney. <laughs> Can I swear on the show? Yes. Well, uh, you can do what you like. <laughs> oh my God. So, and it makes me so angry because feminism is not about that. It's not about excluding certain people from not being girly enough or not being this way enough or not being whatever kind of woman it is that, that you're looking for. Um, so yeah, the stickers may be very angry. So the stickers were out there. It's a form of protest and it is, it is all over. Uh, um, I, I, I've had reactions, so I wrote that piece, and I've had reactions then. Um, but first, can you tell us what yeah. your response was before you give us the reactions? Oh. Because I <laughs> want it on tape. Oh. You know, because you said such powerful things about how there is nothing radical about excluding. Oh, yeah. And, and no, I mean, this sort of hate, discrimination is discrimination. That's what it is. And that's all, these, that's all this sort of activity. So the stickers are representative of just larger... Hate and hate's been around for ages. Discrimination has been around. So, so there's nothing radical about this form of or feminist. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing feminist no, about not that. Not at all. Yeah. Um. And so, what kind of a backlash <laughs> did you? A lot, a lot of hate. I received a lot of hate, um, and I also received a lot of support, which is which is kind of amazing. Um, so there was a, a lot of uh, a lot of reactions to this. I'm, I'm just so amazed, to be honest. Uh, so from from all the places where you would find these stickers, so the UK, from the States, from different parts of Canada, uh, a couple places in, the, in South America. So I received a lot of, a lot of email or Facebook or various, uh, various places, which only fuels my, my, my rage <laughs> um, from that. But I also found a lot of support from people who, uh, who want to come together as a community, which is, which is just so amazing, right? Like these, to turn these things around and make it into community building, to reinvest, I suppose, in, you know, what I hold to be true about, about feminism, about, about inclusivity, you know? Was that your first uh, brush with yes. a kind of... absolutely. And this was on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter? Yeah, social media and email and even a couple of phone calls. Yeah. And how did you <laughs> deal with it? Well, first of all, did it, did it hurt? 
It did hurt, um, but not for too long. <laughs> a, a sting. It was more like it was a more a surprise, like whoa. Uh, I suppose because prior to that, uh, when somebody that I love uh, came out as gender diverse, uh, I had more personal. Right things like about how this may be wrong or questionable things I can't actually reply to. So this was you know because of the because of the anonymity of this sort of thing, right? Um, and it's very difficult to talk back. Uh, so that was that was confusing, and that's where the sting is, I think. So the anonymity of being yeah. attacked on a social media. Yeah, yeah. So so the sting was brief. Yep. And then what did you do? How did you realign? Then I started writing, <laughs> which is great, <laughs> and I agreed to do this, uh, yeah. which is also important. Um, no, it's just it's just sort of double down with the with the kind of work that I'm doing, and I brought it back to to my parent groups, and I brought it back to my colleagues, and we find you know we're going to find ways to put out our message in, in different ways, right? Just get it out there again, more so, right? Um, which I think is community building, and that's what feminism is. Yes, I agree, and that's what art is in yeah, a certain way. Absolutely, this is art. We're yeah. making art. <laughs> so, so in this journey, yeah, what have you learned about gender, about your own gender, about the gender of the people around you? What have you learned about like mm. the narrow-mindedness of others <laughs> and, or yourself, and the open-mindedness? Like, yeah. Um, that's such a big question. <laughs> even a little, even uh, what a did little, I learn? a um, little question, little answer is. Well, I suppose I, I suppose I learned that I take that I have been taking uh, an arbitrary fixity of gender seriously, but not super seriously. I've taken it for granted, right? That mm -hmm. there's a there's a fixity to gender, and that it is actually completely arbitrary. There's no real reason to to hold to this. So that is something that I that I did learn, and I think it's important. So I learned something, you know, like from all these from all these kids, right? They they know what they're talking about, and all you have to do is listen. Um, so I learned that. I learned that. Uh, <laughs> what else? I learned that representation matters. Right. Yeah, I've always held that representation matters, but I've learned that in more so, so that there are more areas of the world that you know of experience where where it does matter to be heard and to be seen and to be recognized and to be loved. Right, that it's in in ways that I didn't even know were possible. Right, so that's so amazing. Um, yeah. Jennifer, oh. thank you so much for this conversation. Yeah, I think uh, we all have to continue learning. Right, and I'm so glad you're doing this work. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for, uh, for inviting me. This <laughs> really is great. great. Really great talk. <laughs> Happy to be here. Our yeah. next State of the Arts is, uh, is going to be broadcast on November 28th, and we are very excited to be featuring the musicians and teachers Nancy Daw and Timothy Steves, who are also known as Duo Concertante. We're going to have a little <laughs> Christmas thing. We're gonna, it's going to be a lot of fun. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thanks. Thanks for listening to State of the Arts. Visit us online at hss.mun.ca slash stateofthearts for our latest videos and other enhanced content. All our videos can be found as a playlist on Memorial University's YouTube channel, and you can subscribe to our podcast by visiting Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or the App Store. State of the Arts is supported by Memorial's Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences and the Center for Innovation in Teaching and Learning. State of the Arts. 
at Memorial Humanities and Social Sciences. Analysis whip smart and professorial smart people talking about what they know best. Listen to Lisa as she brings them all together and we try to figure out how to live together better with fat stacks of research found to impress. So let's talk about the faculty of HSS.